This is Geek Gab with your host, John Bryant and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Sunday, December 18th, 2016. But uh, getting very, very close to 2017. Our topic today is console wars. And we have, very, very exciting, we have the author, Blake J. Harris in the podcast today, but before we invite him on the air, um, I want to do a couple of things real quick, as is the new usual policy. We're not going to have an extensive recap of past events before we get to our uh, exciting guests, but I will mention, I did, in point of fact, see Rogue One last week, and at this moment in time, neither of my co-hosts are planning on doing so, and so we will have a sort of, uh, we will have a very, very teeny tiny short review of it right now, which is, I enjoyed it, it was a good movie, if you want to go see it because it's a Star Wars movie, you probably should, it was very enjoyable. Far better than The Force Awakens and the prequel trilogy. Not as good as the original trilogy, but very enjoyable. So that's the mini-review. We'll talk about it more next time on the podcast, next episode. Also, there's something that was mentioned before we went to air that I just... I want to clarify because I was somewhat confused. So, Dornall, you went and bought a, a puppy? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I had to had to do it. It was just one of those things. Always wanted to to get a new doge. What kind of puppy might you ask? Well, I had to go for the uh, America's second favorite breed. It had to be. It was golden retriever. It was nothing. Oh, golden retrievers. Those are gorgeous dogs. They're beautiful. They're they're very friendly. Great family dogs. The only dog more popular in America is the Labrador retriever, for the same reasons. Also, also good-looking dogs. Okay, I was just kind of confused because we he had started telling me the story and got cut off by other events, so I wanted to get caught back up on that. All right, so let's uh, let's give Brian like half a second to give us uh, his big big new news about Monday. That's tomorrow, right? That is tomorrow, and tomorrow Monday is the official launch day of my third novel. The Secret King Soul Cycle Book Three. It's the sequel to the Dragon Award winning Soul Dancer. And if early reader Buzz is correct, uh, this is where the series really comes into its own. Had a lot of positive feedback so far. I think you guys are going to like it. Now, one other thing, Brian, you are the person who suggested and booked Mr. Blake on the show. So, do you want to give a quick introduction before we? finally allow him to talk absolutely yeah i read blake's book console wars okay and that's console wars sega and nintendo and the battle that defined a generation a link to which can be found in the description of the video good yeah because it's it, it is time to, to stop pimping my wares and start pimping his and deservedly so it is just a fascinating book i know that Many of, if not all of our listeners are big gaming fans, 
and console wars is the essential guide to understanding just the paroxysms that rocked the video game industry in the late 80s and early 90s particularly the battle between the sega genesis and the snes so you know with that in mind i'm going to turn it over to blake hey oh first off congratulations on the third book for finishing a book for releasing a book that's all awesome stuff and i know how hard it is so congrats thank you sir welcome to the show mr harris thanks for having me on guys you're welcome so uh what kind of gab could i uh help with and participate in uh, i'd like to hear about your book honestly i have not read it i will admit and that I'm is not unusual on this show, though. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm pretty sure we all lived through those console wars, too, so that, so I'm totally fascinated by this subject. Yeah, well, don't worry. Uh, several members of my family have still not read it yet, but I'm holding out hope. Um, yeah, so I'm 34. I grew up during the uh, Sega-Nintendo battle. The first console ever, I ever had was the 8-bit NES. Um, there was a big internal family debate about whether to get the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo. Um, we can talk about that later, how that was settled. But, you know, essentially, I grew up um, on the front lines of this console war. I, rem I have very strong memories, many memories from the schoolyard in class with friends, um, like, like I imagine most of you do and most of your listeners do. And uh, then, you know, I, 20 years later, um, actually what had happened was my brother got me a Sega Genesis for my birthday like five or six years ago, and it got me thinking about that time in my life, that period of gaming, uh, what had happened to Sega, where Sega had come from, how Sega had been able to kind of come out of nowhere and take the market away from Nintendo, who had, I later learned, 95% of the market. I just knew that they were popular. And so that all got me thinking. And so before I even wrote Console Wars, I honestly just wanted to read Console Wars. I love behind-the-scenes business stories. And I went to a Barnes & Noble here in Manhattan, uh, a gigantic one, three stories, and asked for the uh, where the video game history section was, thinking it would be near the film history section or the music history section. And the woman literally like laughed at me and uh, you know said that there was no such section, that actually in the entire store there wasn't even a single book on video games. The only thing video game related they had was, was walkthrough guides for you know, current games. And I, I thought that was odd. I, I certainly, at that point, was no expert about the video game industry and had mostly been out of gaming for several years, but I knew it was a big industry, and I assumed that there was an interesting story behind uh, the Sega Nintendo battle and, and many other, uh, you know, companies and console battles. And so uh, that I found that kind of shocking. I, I wouldn't say that I left the store that day thinking, aha, I'm going to you know set out and write this book. But it did kind of set me down this path of curiosity um, that did lead to me writing this book. And it, and it was an incredible story. You know, I think that, um, you know, what what I loved most about it and what I loved most about writing it was that as much as it was like a uh, behind-the-scenes tour of my childhood and an explanation for why things happened that I never really thought about or that I had always wondered about, it was really just a great story about a group of people trying to do something that was seemingly impossible. And those kinds of stories are really nice as a writer because uh, they're kind of universal, you know. So as much as it was about Sega Nintendo, it was just a good universal tale of people coming together with a mission that they succeeded with for some time and then didn't for in the end. Um, and, and that was it, was, it was awesome. You know, I couldn't have asked for a better 
group of characters and and a story to write about, especially for my first book. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I really feel honored that I got to tell that story. And I love so much that even two and a half years later, after it came out, you know, people are still discovering the book, like Brian, and, you know, I'm getting to participate in shows like this. And I'll always participate because I feel like it, it was such an incredible chance that I can't believe no one wrote about it before. And I love to just talk about the people involved and talk about that time period. Because I guess the other thing, too, is, um, you know, it was not... The, the Sega Nintendo battle was not just this isolated incident that happened 20 years ago that's very fascinating, but a lot of what happened during that battle was responsible for creating the modern-day video game industry. So it's a story whose ripples we still feel to this day, and that's um, important. Absolutely. Now, reading the book... Just just a sec. I want to find something yeah. out real quick. Sure. Um, I want to take a poll of me and my two uh, co-hosts <laughs> to find out which which side of the battle you guys landed on way back when. So were you a Mario man or a Sonic man, Brian? Oh, oh me first. Well, there's no way back when about it. I mean, I was just playing my SNES last night. <laughs> okay, I absolutely love it. And I was at the same hardware that you had uh, from way back when. Yeah, it's. <laughs> it's the same like thirty year old concept. Both of them. I still have my original NES and my SNES right next to each other, hooked up to my TV. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I'm, I was a Sega kid myself. See, right. you would expect me at this point to be a tiebreaker, but um, I my family couldn't afford consoles when I was little, and then when I moved out of the house and got big, I didn't buy a console until two thousand and five. And the first console I ever bought was the Xbox One. But, but, the day I bought my Xbox One, I bought two game collection, two games for it. The first one was the collector's edition of Halo 2. <laughs> and the second one was the Sonic Collection. They had a collection of nine different Sonic the Hedgehog games because one of my roommates in college actually had actually had a Genesis, and so I got to play Sonic the Hedgehog and a Roman, a game about a, a captain of Roman troops who eventually conquers the whole empire. I don't even remember what it's called. Um, Centurion or something like that, but yeah, so I'm not exactly a tiebreaker because I didn't own one of those consoles and I didn't buy one of those consoles for years, but had I bought a console back then, it would have been a Sega. In fact, when I bought my Xbox One, uh, three of the games I bought for my Xbox One are Sonic 1, Sonic 2, and Sonic CD. And I've played them on my Xbox One within the last couple of months. So, Well, that's what makes it so fascinating from my perspective, because um, from my perspective, it was a lot about the games. And to me, in hindsight, um, the Sega Genesis, the hardware, was kind of a piece of crap. But... <laughs> uh, because, I mean, when you compare side to side the games, you could tell that Super Nintendo had, like, much higher quality. But the games were so good on the Genesis. Like, they were as good, if not better, in right. terms of fun uh, gameplay, fun, uh, you know, fun art and animations and things. Uh, so Sega just had something there. But is, is, is that what happened behind the scenes? Is that really what happened, Blake, or is it something else? Uh, 
I mean, to some degree, I think a lot of people don't realize, myself included at first, that the Genesis came out two years before the Super Nintendo. So, yeah, it was the first to 16 bits, but, you know, Nintendo was in an opportunity to kind of improve upon that. So I would say that the hardware was technologically superior, but Sega did a great job of maximizing for their hardware. And that was part of, like, <laughs> the business strategy, too. You know, a lot of... A big aspect of the book, kind of like the the ultimate through line, is that this was not necessarily like a good guy versus bad guy battle. Uh, David, you know, it, was, it, it is a David Goliath story, but but no one was really in the wrong here. It was really just a battle of dueling philosophies, and Sega was all about freedom, and Nintendo was all about control in the sense that kind of like Apple today, they had a, a closed architecture. Everything uh, had to go through internal processes, and they really were controlling a lot of it for the, what they said was the sake of quality, which is probably true to some degree. But but because Sega was so open um, to courting and working with third-party developers who made the majority of the games, they were able to better maximize for the system and really um, make games that that probably felt like they were better. You know, I've of course, as part of the research of the book, I talked with a lot of developers outside of Sega Nintendo and whenever I would talk about their game, um, especially the ones that were available on both systems, like the uh, Electronic Arts, the EA Sports games, they would always say like, oh no, make sure you play the Genesis one. That's the one that's like better, even though to your point, you know, the, the hardware itself, I don't think it was better and it came out two years earlier. So it, it kind of shouldn't be better. But uh, yeah, you know, it, it really, like there is a quote in the book that's mentioned several times, the name of the game is the game. And that's really what it all comes down to. And, uh, you know, as businessmen and marketers, you try to make your system seem sexier um, and, you know, more sophisticated, but really it's about the games. And Sega did a great job of getting that library and also kind of creating that perception that their system was faster and could handle Sonic and things like that. And the David versus Goliath metaphor is really apt because, you know, even as a Mario man, as David Warpig said, I couldn't help but root for Tom Kalinske and Sega and just their, their scrappy underdog battle to take yeah. away market share for Nintendo. Yeah, no, it was great. Like what, what was so fascinating conceptually to me was that the heart of the story is the David and Goliath struggle of Sega on kind of like, almost like it reminded me of that movie and the book Moneyball of like competing against this um, Goliath and you have like one-tenth the budget of your competitor, you know, so you have to come up with creative strategies and clever ways to do things. But what was conceptually interesting to me was that five years earlier, Nintendo was David and their own David and Goliath story of resurrecting the video game industry. So um, I kind of thought that that was odd. You know, we never hear much about the backstory of Goliath, but in this case we did, and it actually played a huge role in how this played out. Because um, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but the American, the video game industry as a whole in 1982 disappeared because of several things, but mainly E.T., uh, the infamous game they buried in an actual landfill. It was so bad. Right. It was so unsold. And after that, the, the video game industry was kaput until Nintendo came along um, with what had been the Famicom in Japan and became mm -hmm. the Nintendo Entertainment System in America. Absolutely. And, you know, in hindsight, given how big, video game industry has become and what a big part of our lives it is for most of us, you know, it might seem silly to think that the video game industry is dead circa 1985, 
But it's not that silly if you think about that around that time the personal computer revolution was happening and that a lot of this just could have happened on PCs. You know, that, and, and that is partially what happened in countries outside of the United States, particularly in Europe. You know, the PC gaming became bigger. Um, they didn't really have a battle of Sega versus Nintendo. It was more about PC versus console. And so if you think about it in that respect, it's not that strange to think of console gaming really not really returning in the way that it did. But Nintendo really believed in the Famicom, as you mentioned, you know, it was mentioned in the, it was uh, released in the early 80s in Japan and not released in the United States until 1985. And even when it was, they did all the things that businesses are supposed to do, like focus groups and testing and all that. And it tested worse than any product ever, the focus group <laughs> tester said. You know, so their recommendation was do not release this product. Um, and, and, you know, as great as we all remember the NES to be, it was, it was a real challenge to even just get it into stores. I remember hearing from several of the salespeople who were, like, literally on the ground going into stores, going into the Wiz, going into Crazy Eddie's, saying, hey, will you carry this for the Christmas season? And then being told no because they had been burned by consoles in the past. And, that, and that's really, you know, a lot of what the book was about just the kind of things that I wouldn't have normally thought about before. I think that as a kid and even as an adult, we just kind of imagined there's this meritocracy to products that like the best products are available and we could buy them. And you know, the best games are the ones that are in the stores. We don't think about what a challenge it is to persuade um, the regional sales managers and what a big difference that makes. Or even in the case of like Sega, um, there was a point where they definitely had a very good case that they had the better console, especially with Sonic the Hedgehog coming out before the Super Nintendo. Um, and they still couldn't even get a, a, a huge chain like Walmart to carry um, Sega products because, um, you know, Walmart got such a large percentage of their <laughs> revenue from selling Nintendo products that they didn't want to upset Nintendo, who uh, was known to have some monopolistic practices and and kind of like a long memory with these things where shipments would maybe disappear if, if retailers did something that they weren't very happy with. And so even whether or not you agree that Sega had a better system, you know, at least it was a, it was a system worth buying, you know, or at least worth being available for customers to decide. And um, they couldn't even get into stores. And so, you know, in that case, Sega did something that was one of my favorite stories in the book where they 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 went down to Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO of Sega of America from 1990-96. You know, he was the captain of the ship during these glory years. He went down to Bentonville, Arkansas, to the headquarters there, uh, tried to get them to carry the Sega Genesis. They would not for the reasons I described, which had less to do with quality but more to do with politics. And uh, then him and Shinobu Toyota, his right-hand man, uh, they came up with this idea to basically turn Bentonville, Arkansas into Segaville. They bought up every billboard. They bought the seat cushions at the football games for the University of Arkansas. They um, rented out a store across the street from Walmart headquarters, um, like at a mall where people could come in and play Sega um, for free. They weren't even selling anything, but basically just to create awareness in Bentonville, this guerrilla marketing campaign to the point where several people, like, you know, hundreds of people were going into the flagship Walmart in Bentonville and asking for a Sega Genesis and being told that it wasn't sold there and then them being upset. And that is eventually what got Walmart to change their mind. And so it's a lot of tactics like that, that, uh, you know, really kind of describe what Sega of America was like during that time. And also I think um, ch helped change the video game industry from it being a, a monopoly run by Nintendo, or even just as it had been in previous console generations where it's just kind of like one company is on top and there's not really room for anyone else. 
Yeah, the just the lengths that they went to to try to get into Walmart were amazing and ridiculous of the <laughs> ridiculous that it took that much effort. And didn't it take like a year or more for Sigaville to finally work? Yeah, I mean, all this stuff just takes time too. That's the other thing that you kind of don't realize. Like, you know, even if it was a meritocracy, it's like you know, there's managers and they have bosses and everyone has to sign off on things. And we know how slow bureaucracy works, especially back then in the pre-internet era. So even if you had a good idea that was worth supporting, it just takes a long time to do all this if you don't have that infrastructure and pipeline in place already. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to mention was the book was, I don't want to say weighted towards Sega because I know that wasn't entirely up to you. And it, how was it trying to deal with the Nintendo get, like statements from folks who worked in Nintendo get their side of the story. Sure. No, I mean, that's fair to say it's weighted. It, the, the story is definitely weighted towards Sega. I would, I would argue that it's not biased towards Sega, you know, that it tries right. to present an equal perspective of both. But, but the more interesting story to me is the underdog story of going from nothing to something and then surpassing Nintendo. And, and also too, you know, Sega's strategy largely that was successful and, help them compete against Nintendo who really owned the market for for kids was that Sega wanted to open up gaming to teenagers, college students and adults, which is what the gaming industry is today. So, you know, I think that they had the more impactful, uh, you know, strategy during that era. But yeah, I mean, to your point, speaking with Nintendo was tough. They are a historically tight-lipped company. Um, also, Whereas Sega was very much like a Silicon Valley company where people come in and out, they hire experts, um, you know, for certain specialties and they're, very, you know, grow very quickly and then shrink very quickly. Nintendo uh, is much more slow and steady and, and people who work there tend to work there for their entire lives. So it's harder to get interviews with people who are still affiliated with the company, um, which was not the case with Sega. So it was very hard uh, for a long while. Nintendo had no interest in speaking with me or having their employees speak with me. But, uh, you know, luckily, though it didn't feel that way at the time, the, the book took three years to put together. And as, you know, more and more good things happened with the book, uh, you know, selling the proposal to a publisher, HarperCollins, uh, having a film project set up with Seth Rogen and Scott Rudin at Sony Pictures, you know, the more and more that Nintendo saw that even though I had no credits to my name, this is something that probably a decent amount of people are going to read. Uh, they started to change their mind and, and I don't blame them for that. You know, I, it's, it's, it's hard to ask anyone to give you their time when they don't know that it's actually going to lead to anywhere. Um, and I really, and you know, even though for the most of the book, Nintendo is uh, kind of the minority perspective. I, 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 I do really appreciate them realizing that they should be the ones to tell their story and not have their competitors tell their story. And, and you know what, in the end, Nintendo won that battle. So they have nothing to hang their heads about, and I think that they realize that. And so, uh, you know, I was able to speak with Howard Lincoln, who was um, the number two, then the number one guy back then. He's currently the president of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, really fascinating guy, former Navy lawyer. Um, you know, and kind of, I, I got to see it from their perspective, and that was really cool because, in a way, I kind of wanted the reader to experience um, the battle the same way that I did as a researcher where for the first, you know, year or so, I'm just hearing about how Nintendo's, you know, the biggest jerks in the world, um, all these potentially illegal things they're doing and what bullies they are. 
and then as I got to speak with more people from Nintendo, I saw that at least you know they had they had reasons for doing what they did. They thought they were the good guys in the story, and I think that that's important because in every battle, both both competitors always think that they're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as um, when, when does the when does the book end? Like chronologically speaking, because obviously you can't can't cover everything up until you know, the PS4 era, but when, when does the book end chronologically? Sure. The book ends in 1996. Um, you know, like, like I kind of said earlier that of course this is a video game book, but like really it's the story about people. And so the book essentially starts in 1990 with Tom Kalinske, who's the uh, former CEO of Mattel. Uh, he had helped create the Flintstones chewable vitamins before that and done all these great things in his career, like revive the Barbie line and help create He-Man Masters Universe. And, uh, but he was out of a job in 1990 and sort of at a crossroads in his life uh, on a beach in Hawaii with his family, not really knowing what he's going to do next for his uh, career and kind of assuming that the best years of his career are behind him. And then he's approached out of the blue by Hayao Nakayama, the president of Sega of Japan, and offered a job to, uh, take, you know, to, to take on Nintendo and to run Sega. And uh, he ends up accepting that opportunity. And so the book really chronicles his experience at Sega, which ends in 1996, a year after the release of the Sega Saturn. And so, yeah, you know, it does not go into the full life of the Saturn. Uh, it doesn't go at all into the Dreamcast, though I think that, uh, well, one, I, I would love to read a book about those years. You know, I, if anything, I hope that my book inspires others to write about the industry in this way. Um, but two, I think that even though you don't really get to see the quote-unquote fall of Sega, at least, or, or their exit from the console business, you see a lot, you, you, you understand why things probably fell apart, because, you know, I don't think this is much of a spoiler alert, it probably says it on the back of the book, but, you know, when, when I set out to spend three years and write 500 pages about Sega and Nintendo, uh, I assumed that the most interesting battle in this book would be between Sega and Nintendo, but actually it turned out to be between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, and that is, uh, you know, largely what what led to Sega's demise. And I think that it still persists to this day, this divide between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. I, I want to say something real quick. In 1996, by the way, for those of you that don't think in terms of years, you think in terms of when games you like were released, 1996 was the year that Duke Nukem 3D came out. It was the year when Civilization II came out, and it was the year when the first Resident Evil was released. So if, if that helps you place it chronologically better than just the year, uh, those are the big, <laughs> big, big landmarks that year. Masters of Orion 2 also came out that year. Um, that's just a killer year. Monster. Great year to stop on. Yeah, it, you know, it felt like a very natural point to me. You know, Sega really did have like definitely less than 5% on the market to start with. And, uh, you know, they did surpass Nintendo at some point in, by 94 and we're up to 60%. And by the time the story ends, they're, they're back down again. And because, you know, the elephant in the room or the elephant that kind of uh, goes from this small elephant to this gigantic one by the end of the book is Sony. Uh, they are kind of, uh, they're the third perspective in this book. They start off in 1991. They're going to release, um, you know, the, the, the Nintendo PlayStation, essentially, a partnership between Sony and Nintendo. And then they kind of get scorned by Nintendo. And then they end up getting scorned by Sega, though not 
by Sega of America's Choice, and they end up going in on their own, and they end up releasing the console that is much more successful than the N64 and the Sega Saturn. So it felt like a natural ending point, and uh, you know, I hope that someone, or maybe myself one day, will take that baton and, and tell the next part of the story. So you also mentioned, I guess before I mention what's coming next, uh, do either of you guys have any other questions on, on console wars? No. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was I was too busy playing my old emulators. <laughs> you I mentioned I have a, a truckload, but I'm not, I will I will spare us that. <laughs> we would be talking. Well, about it. The, the one the one thing I was just kind of thinking about that I, that I would want to mention is like, you know, in the, in that battle, the philosophical battle between Nintendo and Sega, it was very much like Nintendo was about, get, uh, you know, focused on product development, and Sega was largely about marketing. Uh, you know, probably listeners remember Blast Processing and the crazy Sega ads that ended with Sega. Um, and, and marketing was a big part of it. And and one of the most important marketing things they did early on, before they even were doing these commercials that we remember, was creating Sonic the Hedgehog. They had an internal mascot competition. They intentionally set out to create their own Mario. And, and I mention that because, like, you know, a, a lot, you know, who doesn't want their own Mario? But, you know, a lot of times when companies when we think about like these business stories of men in a boardroom trying to come up with something that kids would like, it, it often turns out like, uh, like, you know, like Poochie on the Simpsons where it's just like this thing that tries to be cool, but isn't cool at all. And, you know, it, it's kind of baffling to the executives. And so I think, you know, so much credit is, is owed to Sega for successfully creating Sonic. And, and there were so many facets to doing that. And, and in hindsight, it might seem like it was easier than it really was. Um, but but it's hard, you know, to think about what Sega was able to do by creating this property out of scratch, and and how Sonic still continues to have such a wide audience, you know, wide audience to this day, just in terms of like the character, the IP, not even the games, and and you compare that to other flagship characters, whether it's Crash Bandicoot or Pac-Man or whatever, you know, it's it's just kind of remarkable to me that he has lived on in that way, and I think it's largely because of how they brought him into this world. A little homework for the listeners out there. Google Mr. Needle Mouse and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so you mentioned that you were also working on another book. I don't know how much how much you can tell us about that project because it's it's still not complete. It's not published yet. But do you want to do you want to tease anybody? Tease the listeners about your new project? Sure. So you know, I think that kind of you guys get the sense from me talking about console wars that that what I loved so much about that story was that it was more than just video games. It was kind of this this wonderful intersection of uh, personalities, uh, technology, entertainment, social uh, interaction, and, and all these things, you know, in a way that, that did make it feel like um, a, a huge cultural battle from the early 90s that affected a lot of people's lives. And so I remember after finishing the book, I was telling my manager that it was really sad I was never going to write a book as good as Council Wars. And he said, oh, no, no, don't worry. You know, you'll keep getting better at writing. And I said, yeah, I, I hope I do, but I just think I'm never going to find a topic that speaks to so many people and, you know, describes something that had such a big impact on the world, especially culturally, um, and had such interesting personalities and ideas. And, uh, and, and that, that's fine. You know, uh, I, I'm so proud of console wars and if it's the best book I ever write, I'm, I'll be very happy with that. But, but, uh, a few years ago I tried the, uh, the Oculus Rift DK one, the development kit headset, 
And uh, as soon as I did, I thought, wow, you know, this is going to be bigger than Sega Nintendo. This is a story, you know, virtual reality, the resurrection of virtual reality and where VR goes these next five, 10, 100 years is going to be bigger than console gaming to me, or at least, uh, you know, worthy of a of great story. And so that's what the new book is about. It's the, about the resurrection of consumer virtual reality and, uh, you know, largely focused on Oculus and what they've been able to do these past four years. And of course, also Valve and HTC and Sony and now Google. Um, and, and basically just what it takes to start and sustain a technological revolution. Because to the point we were talking about earlier with the hardware of the Genesis, you know, a lot of the times it's not just about the technology, it's about making it accessible to people, making it attractive to people, largely about having the content to uh, get people interested and, and just, you know, whether it's marketing or PR or just all these little things that have to kind of fall into place to make something take off and, and make it actually become the next big thing. And I think that the future is very bright for virtual reality. And uh, my, my objective with this new book is to chronicle how come and how we got to here. And, and, you know, once again, go behind the scenes and sort of celebrate and get to know the men and women responsible for making that happen. All right. Well, we are almost out of time. Actually, technically we're over time, but, uh, you know, we're, we can be flexible here. Is there uh, any last messages you have for the, uh, for the listeners? Well, on what subject matter? Give me, give me a anything prompt. You want, anything you want to say. Um, Other than politics, really. <laughs> um, yeah, let me tell you what I think about politics. Um, no, I, I have no message. Um, I, I, whether you read Council Wars or not, I encourage you to read and maybe even research yourself first-person um, accounts of the gaming industry. I think that that's, that's, that's largely what I'm most proud of with Council Wars. I think that there are, there are so few video game books out there um, but even those that are out there often don't include the perspective of those that are involved. It's often secondhand information that just continues to get parroted over and over and is often not accurate, but you know, you can source it to other places and Wikipedia. Um, and so I think that one of my favorite parts about writing console wars was just hearing like these oral histories of what happened. And um, you know, these people are still alive. They're getting a little bit older um, and, and it's a great time to, to learn more, um, you know, whether you're a reader or whether you're a writer. Um, any last words, Brian? Well, I, I'm having a hard time following that. And I'm getting <laughs> all choked up from the nostalgia of this trip down memory lane. So I just want to thank Blake for coming on and doing what he does. And I would like to wish him all success in his future endeavors. Thank you guys for having me on. In an effort to crush Brian's ego, I'm going to speak one more fact about 1996. 1996 was also the year that Diablo was released. Yeah. Big year, big year. Any last words, Dornal? I'm good. Thanks for coming on, Blake. It was great talking to you. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. Very much appreciate you taking the time to come on The Gab. Um, so let's uh, let's run down through the normal stuff, folks. This is Geek Gab. We're a live podcast. We're here roughly once a week, um, broadcasting on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. You can watch all our past shows and uh, catch announcements about these events when they get posted, which isn't necessarily too timely recently, but we're hoping to change that. But also, just in case you didn't know, uh, if you listen to the live shows, you can participate in the chat and ask us questions. We do take questions from the chat. We didn't have any today. But also, you can catch us on the uh, Apple 
iTunes. Uh, just do a search for Geek Gab. You can subscribe on iTunes, get the podcast version of this show to listen uh, weeks or months later. You can also catch us on, uh, if you don't want to go through iTunes, just on the web on SoundCloud. Uh, do a search for Geek Gab. We're on there. And last but not least, you can also catch us on the Google Play app for Android. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and you can get this podcast, any one of those places we make it available to anyone uh, all over the place. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Uh, links to Brian's first two books, uh, Netherion and Sodancer, are in the uh, description below the video or in Get Information in iTunes. Uh, links also to Brian's blog, my blog, our Twitter accounts, and uh, the podcast feed for iTunes, just in case you can't find that easily by searching for GeekGab. Thanks for tuning in for today. This has been episode 78, Council Wars with Blake J. Harris. We appreciate Mr. Harris coming on. We appreciate all of you for listening in live and everybody who listens later. We are signing off for now, but don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.